Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. We have the privilege this week of reading and learning Parshas Re'eh together. Re'eh is found in the article Stone Chumash, page 998. I want to thank our generous sponsors. First of all, Becky and Avi Katz, who generously sponsored the Parsha Shir for the year in memory of Becca's father, David Grossman, David Menachem Manish, Neshama Shedavan Aliyah. Thank you so much to our dear friends, the Katz. Also this morning, Shear is sponsored by Sharon and David Carpell, in memory of her beloved father, Herman Rockoff, Chaim Shmuel Ben Meshulam Faivish on his yurt site, his Neshama Shedavan Aliyah. Thank you so much to the Carpells. If you'd like to sponsor a future Parsha Shear or any of our Shearim, we've made it easier than ever. Go to brsonline.org slash sponsor brsonline.org slash sponsor. In the one spot, you can choose the date, write the language, make the payment easier than ever. Parshish Re'eh, Moshe Rabbeinu, is continuing his monologue, his soliloquy, his charge and mission to the Jewish people. He will not be joining them, but they will be entering the land of Israel. And he wants to make sure that they've learned the lessons of the desert. They've learned the lessons of all that they've been through. He wants to make sure that they're going to go into Israel, the very best versions of themselves, or at least the very best versions possible. So he begins, Re'eh Anochi Nosein Lefnechem Hayom, Bracha Uklala. See, behold, today I've placed before you a blessing and a curse. Esa bracha, what is the bracha? You will lead a blessed life. You will lead a beautiful life, a good life. If what? Esa bracha, if you, if you listen to the mitzvahs of Hashem. Ba'aklala, and the curse is, If you don't listen to the mitzvahs of Hashem, if you stray, if you abandon the path, if you are distracted, if you give in to temptation, you're going to pursue and you're going to follow celebrities, athletes, influencers, the mighty dollar, money, politics, politicians, natural order, the natural world. You're going to subscribe to other sources of power, of influence in this world. You will abandon God and think it's that's a life of klala. That's a life of chasing your tail. It's a life of disappointment. It's a life of emptiness. It is a great and grave mistake. So what does this mean? Moshe says, Behold, I've placed before you today blessing and curse. What does that mean? Did he literally put them before them? What does it mean he's put? So we've analyzed this. You can listen to past Parsha Shiram, and you will see that we've spoken about this and we've spoken about it often. But I want to share some new insights and new perspectives on the question of what it means. So we begin the Kotzkoreb. I mentioned last week, I think, a new wonderful sefer that came out, Emez Ve'emuna, a beautiful collection of the teachings of the Kotzkoreb, of Menachem Mendel of Kotzk. Re'a nochi nosein lifnechem, he writes, Kasha Yoshev HaRebbe HaKadosh Rabbi Yaakov Aryeh Meradzmin, B'Shavaz Kodesh Parshat Re'eh B'Shochono Shorabbeinu, when this great tzaddik once sat at the table of the Kotzkoreb, Sha'alitz Rabbeinu Adiktuk, he wondered out loud to the great Kotzkoreb, what's going on in this opening Pasuk? It seems incongruous. The grammar shifts. The grammar's off. Masha Pasach of Re'eh B'Lashon Yachid. It begins in the singular, Si, Re'eh, in the singular, addressing the individual. V'Himshech B'Lashon Rabbim. And then it continues in the plural. Lifnechem in the plural. So why the shift? Re'eh in the singular, Look, See, the blessing and curse I've placed before you in the plural, lifnechem. Ve'heshev lo Rabbeinu, and answered the Kotzker Rebbe, api ma'shekasu b'zohar ha'kadosh, v'yishma Yisro, shekulam shamu, aval hu shama u'boli de'maisa. The Zohar has an observation when it comes to Yisro. Yisro, the great convert, 
It's a debate if he converted. But Yisro, the great father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu, who comes and he joins the journey of the Jewish people. And there too, Vayishma Yisro, says the Zohar, Yisro did not hear something that was not broadcast to everyone. Yisro watched the same newscast. He read the same headlines. He got the same email notification and alert. He saw the same events as the rest of the world. The difference is, he heard, he listened in a penetrative way. He listened not only superficially, he listened not only audibly, he listened with his heart, he listened with his soul. That's why Rashi, the beginning of Pasha's Yisro, Mashmu Shama Uba, what did Yisro hear that made him stop, get up, and go? So the same broadcast went out to the entire world. Universally, all of humanity heard the same news about what God had done in Egypt and the miracles that he had performed. Yisro, however, integrated them. He heard them in an altogether different way. Says the Kotzkarebbe, the same is true here. God presents us the blueprint for creation. God gives all of us equally the instruction manual for life. We all have access to the Torah. And we all have access to halacha. And we all have access to Jewish thought and Jewish inspiration. But the way that we absorb, the way that we integrate, the way that we receive, and the way we react is different for every one of us. Because a person only sees the world through the filter of our own personality. We see and we absorb and we analyze the world through the filter of our own personality, our own personal history, our own narrative. So said the Katzkarebbe, that's why the shift in the grammar. We begin re'eh in the singular, lifnechem in the plural. Lifnechem, what's presented in front of everyone, is presented equally. The Torah was given to us as a blueprint, as a manual. The Torah was given to us as a GPS, a navigation device to make our way through this world. But how we use the Torah to interpret the world, how we interact and engage the world, every one of us is different, every one of us is distinct, every one of us is unique, and therefore re'eh in the singular. It was given in Hashemayim kulam b'shava, v'chol echad ve'echad notam imenu l'fimashim ahusav achanaso. We take out, we extract, we experience from Torah what we put in. So we all have the same Torah. But does that Torah enrich? Does it elevate? Does it inspire? Or is the Torah a burden? Is the Torah a list, a series of check marks that we place? It's up to us. That's why there's a shift, says the Katzkarebbe. Lufnechem. All of us have access to the same Torah. But the Re'eh, what we see, how we see it, how we receive it, every one of us is different. That's number one. Number two, says the Katzker, Od Perish. Furthermore, that which she presented to the masses, even the individual is able to perceive, even the individual is able to see through the connection with somebody greater. So sometimes we can't perceive on our own, but when there's a tzibur, when there's a klal, when there's a group, when there's a community, it enables us. So Re'eh, the singular, is able to see. Why? Because it's placed lefnechem. Me on my own, limited vision. I may not have good vision, proper vision. But when I combine, when I collaborate, when I'm complemented by the tzibur, now I can see much further. Now I can see much deeper. Now I can see much better. That's why Re'eh, how I as the individual see, is based on lefnechem, based on what is placed lefnechem. 
All of that is the Katzke Rebbe, Katzke Rebbe Pshat number one, and Katzke Rebbe Pshat number two. What about Rav Asher Weiss? Rav Asher Weiss has another. Marav Rabbi Rav Asher Weiss, the Minchas Asher, has another interpretation. Why the shift? We go from the singular Re'eh to the plural Lifnechem. What is it meant to teach us? So Rav Asher quotes a Gemara in Kedushin. The Gemara in Kedushin, on Daf Mem Amid Beis, says the following. Liolam yira adam atzmo ki ilu chetzio zakai. A person should always live life and live in this world as if we ourselves are half worthy and half unworthy. Half we deserve and half we're undeserving. And then on the scale, the scale is exactly equal. The scale is exactly in balance. The scale is exactly even. What happens if we do one mitzvah? We tilt the scale in our own favor. If we make one more mistake, one more miscalculation, one more misstep, then the scale is tipped in the other direction. Our whole fate, our whole fortune is determined by that one other mistake we made that compounded our other mistakes and tilted the scale against our favor. Why? Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, has a different understanding. He says the whole world is judged. The fate and future of the whole world is determined by the majority of the citizens of the inhabitants of the world. And the individual is judged by the majority of our deeds. So if we do one more mitzvah, we tilt the scale not only in our favor, but it tilts the scale for the entire world. Because if the world is in balance, all of people, we should see ourselves as the one that, yeah, maybe I don't feel like getting up off the couch. Maybe I don't want to wake it up early and make it to Minyan. Maybe I don't want to dabble with Kavana. Maybe I don't want to answer in the WhatsApp group the request for Chesed to drive someone to their doctor's appointment or make a meal for someone who needs it. Maybe I don't feel like it, and I'm entitled not to, but I should think about it that my next act, if I take advantage of the invitation and opportunity to do that mitzvah, to do that Chesed, it will not only tilt the scale for me, it could tilt the scale for the entire world. And the opposite is also true. I'm about to look at that image on the internet. about to watch the thing I shouldn't watch. I'm about to share the Lashonara I shouldn't share. I'm about to be hypercritical of someone. Not only will it negatively impact the scale against my favor, but it will negatively impact the entire world as well. So therefore, Hashem rewards on a scale far greater than that which He punishes. The reward for bringing merit to the community, says Rav Asher, is greater than the punishment for bringing guilt. We find an example of the Orachayim on this Psukim. What reward did Hashem give the midwives in return for saving the Jewish people? Going back to the beginning of Shmos, we go back to Yocheved and Miriam. He granted them an opportunity to perform a mitzvah with infinite reward. As the nation multiplied, they became great. The reward of the midwives increased. They were credited for the birth of all future generations. They had a residual income. They just saved the babies they delivered, but all the progeny and offspring of the babies they saved and delivered were also part of their merit. They tell us that a wise person is someone who can see Roa Esanolad. We see the outcome of what we do, not just the immediate and present outcome, but the longer term impact and outcome. So we have to consider every action to determine how it's going to influence the entire community. And says the Minchas Asher of Asher, that's what it means. Ray, you the individual, feel like staying in bed. You feel like omitting the bracha. You feel like letting someone else do the chesed. You feel like holding back and being stingy with the tzedakah. You feel like not being scrupulous or careful with the kashras. Let someone else 
realize that this choice, this moment of truth, this what seems like an easy or a negligible or a big and consequential act, not only will determine and influence you, your fortune, tilt your scale, it can impact the entire humanity, the entire universe. So Re'ei, you the individual, Lifnechem, know that the outcome and impact of what you do is going to affect not just you, is going to affect much more broadly. And be mindful, be conscientious, be thoughtful, be motivated by the idea that it's not just because you'll say, I can live with the punishment. I'll live with the scale being tilted against me. But is it fair to do that to humanity? I think there's a lot of relevance to this opening pasuk, because we're seeing the spike in South Florida. In particular, we are struggling with enormous spike, mostly among unvaccinated. We're making health choices, but the health choices we make don't only impact us. Choosing to be vaccinated, unvaccinated, the impact of a medical system overwhelmed by unvaccinated, who are predominantly the ones who are um, the ones who the medical system, the hospital ICUs need. Re'ei, we the individual don't live in isolation. We don't live alone. Our choices, not elaborating, people are right to make their own choices. But as we're making our choices, they're not only medical choices, they're moral choices. They're moral choices because they're re'ei, they're for us the individual, but lifnechem, the consequence of the individual choice we make, will have an impact not only for us, but for the entire seaboard. So we saw the Katskarebbe two interpretations. We saw the Vasha Weissen interpretation. And now we see from Rav Druk, Eish Tamid. He says the following. On these opening few psukim, we have several questions. Rav Chaim Benatar, the Orachayim HaKadosh, asks, we're trying to invoke the senses, not senses, like taking a senses, the senses, of the Jewish people. So Moshe says, Re'ei, look, Chevra, look, look, I'm putting before you a bracha and a klala. Is that the sense that you would invoke? If you're trying to inspire, you're trying to motivate, you're trying to give feedback, would you say, Re'ei, look? Or might you say, listen, listen, Chevra, listen. You know, orators will use the word listen in a drasha, in a speech, in a sermon, if they want to get your attention back if they've lost it, or even if you're paying attention, they want to heighten that attention, they'll say, listen carefully. I want to quote an amazing Orachayim. Listen carefully what the Orachayim says. They don't say, look carefully what the Orachayim says. They say, listen carefully. Of Pesach Kro, no way. Listen to an amazing interpretation of the Svarna. Listen, they don't say look. So why here does Moshe Rabbeinu say, Re'ei, look, I've put before you bracha and klala. He should say, Listen, the audience, the assembled, are hearing what's being presented to them. They're not seeing. So why do we say, Re'ei, look? We should say more accurately, Listen. We also find in a few weeks' time, Moshe will continue his speech, his charge, and he will say again, Re'ei, look, I've placed before you life and good or death and evil. And the Orchaim's question equally applies there. Moshe is speaking. He is presenting. So why does he say, look? He should say, listen. Similarly, we found in Shmos, with the man, Friday, the double portion. Look, God gave you Shabbos. Can you see Shabbos? Can you see Shabbos? If you listen to turn Friday into Erev Shabbos, 
and you get to turn Friday into Erev Shabbos WhatsApp group, then you can see Shabbos coming. But do we see Shabbos? Shabbos, Shabbos is a metaphysical, spiritual thing. There too, they were hearing what Moshe was saying about Shabbos and about the man. Why do we invoke the verb to see rather than to listen? Moreover, why do we mention twice the word Anochi? See, I, Anochi, I am placing before you today, Bracha Uklala, Asha Anochi that I command you today. Did we forget who's talking to us? Anochi? Moshe Rabbeinu is the humblest of all men. Why does he have to keep saying, I, 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 I? See what I placed before you, that I commanded you. Why does the word Hayom appear? The beginning of our parasha we have, that you listen to Hashem, see what I've placed before you today, the mitzvah and the opposite before you today. We know it's today. Also, why is Re'eh Lashen Yachid and then Lefnechem Lashen Rabbim? So Rav Juk asks a series of questions. Number one, why Re'eh? Why listen instead of hear? Not only in our place, but in Nitzavim and in Shemos, in three places, three times, Moshe says, Re'eh, look, when he should have said, listen. Question number two is, why is Anochi twice? We know you're the one speaking. And question number three is, why Hayom? We know it's today. Question number four, why do we shift from the singular to the plural? These are of Juk's four questions, Eish Tamed, page Resh Chav Dalad, if you are following at home. And Rav Juk says the following. He says, we can answer with an insight of the Balaturim. The Balaturim, the Rosh had a son, Rabbi Yaakov, commentary on the Torah, the Balaturim. And he says the following, Re'e Anochi, Anochi, you hear the word Anochi. What should the word Anochi, let's play word association. You hear the word Anochi, what do you think of immediately? Anochi. What you should think of immediately, the word Anochi, says the Balaturim, is, Aseres Hadibro Shepasach Ba'anochi, V'tekayim Osam Ki Kol Klulos Bahem. The Aseris Adibros, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, contain within them, they are super categories of all 613 mitzvos. You can subsume and categorize, you can catalog all Taryag, all 613, under these overarching ten. And all ten can fit into the first one, and all the first one can fit into the word Anochi. Whenever we see, whenever we hear the word Anochi, the association should be with the Ten Commandments, Aseris Adibros. So Bira Advarim says Rav Druk, Anochi should remind us of Harsinai. And what was the sense that was engaged, that was heightened at Harsinai? Even though there was a sound and a light show, there was thunder, there was unbelievable what was going on. Nevertheless, the Pasuk describes in Shemos Perchav, We heard the sounds. We've discussed in the past on that Parsha. What does it mean they heard the sounds? You, I'm sorry, what does it mean they saw the sounds? You hear sounds, you don't see sounds. So Rashi there brings the Mechilta, they saw that which is ordinarily heard. The way the world is programmed and designed is that sound waves go into our ear and we hear sound, we don't see it. We see images, we hear sounds. Here it was mixed up, which there is a there is a, uh, people sometimes suffer where the senses get mixed up. But is that what happened collectively, all the Jewish people? So the answer is, They didn't just hear the Ten Commandments when they were given and delivered. They saw. 
they saw, it came alive. What it means is that at Harsinai, the image, the sounds, what was being described was so vivid, was so dynamic, was so powerful that they saw it in their mind's eye. It wasn't just that Shabbos was being given and described. Shabbos was being described so clearly and so powerfully, they pictured, they envisioned, they saw Shabbos. And that's true for all the Aseris Hadibros. That's why we tell somebody, do you see what I'm saying? When I tell you something, I don't say, do you hear what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? See means, do you see? Do you fully embrace? Do you fully accept? Are you fully connected with what I'm telling you? Are you only hearing the words or can you picture it? Are you attached to it? Do you envision it? It says in Parshas Ve'eschan, Ladas, you have been shown to know, you can see and have knowledge that there is God, no one like Him. And Rashi writes, When God gave the Torah, He opened up the seven heavens. You were shown to know. The knowledge comes from seeing Seeing, they didn't just hear the Torah being given, they saw God, they experienced in a way that we could say, you saw. You cannot compare the sense of hearing with the sense of seeing. Sense of seeing is the most genuine, the most authentic, the most convincing, the most persuasive. That's why we tell someone, do you see what I'm saying? So therefore, with this insight of the Balaturim, that the word Anochi should immediately for us be an association, it should invoke the Aseris Adibros. Anochi means we didn't just hear words, those words were so descriptive, those words were so palpable that we saw what was being described. That's what Moshe is saying, says Rav Druk. Re'ei, Anochi no lefnechem hayom. Anochi twice, because Aseris Adibros. Re'ei, because I want you not just bracha uklala to hear words. This isn't just intellectually. This isn't a yom iyun. We're not having a study session, a conference, a convention on what does it mean, a life of observance. Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? It needs to be an emotional connection. It needs to be a connection of all the senses. This is a perpetual, everlasting obligation to always look, to see the Aseris Adibros, not just to hear the words of Torah, but the words of Torah to penetrate into us so deep that it in fact causes us to see, to causes us to see with the sense of sight. Now we understand Re'e Balashan Yachid. So just like Aser Sedivis was Lashan Yachid, just like the Ten Commandments was written in the singular, so to Re'e, you in the singular, see. See the way you saw at Har Sinai. Let's go back to Arsinai for a moment. In the same way that Arsinai was so dynamic, so descriptive, you saw the sounds. I want you to see the sounds I'm telling you, says Moshe Rabbeinu, now as well. And therefore we understand Why is the word Hayom repeated twice? Because what Moshe is impressing upon them was, Aseris Hadibros was not a one-time event. It was not an isolated experience in history. There wasn't only one time when God gave Torah that you can see the sounds. Every time you open Torah, every time we learn Torah, every time we commit to Torah, Hayom, today, as if we receive the Torah anew. The Torah is not an ancient, outdated, antiquated document. The Torah is a vibrant, living Torah. 
And today, Hayom Re'ei, if we like at Harsinai, Anochi, the Anochi of Aseris Adibros, if we see the sounds, we'll see the Bracha and the Klala. And I think that's in fact what happens. Look around at this world. Read Torah, learn Torah, be excited by Torah. Study the Parsha, study Machshava, study Gemara, study Allah, study Nach, but study in a way that you're not memorizing facts, places, people, dates, laws. We're not memorizing. It doesn't just enter us intellectually, it enters us emotionally. We're able to see a view, an image of what my Shabbos table could look like. I could see what a life of Amuna could look like. I see what it means to transmit Torah, please God, we should all be blessed to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and beyond, to not just hear sounds, but to see that image and to pass it and to pay it and to pay it forward. There's another interpretation. So we saw what does it mean, why the shift singular to plural. We saw two interpretations of the Kutzker, one of Rav Usher Weiss and the beautiful insight of Rav Druk. We've shared in the past, one of my favorites is, the Rei Anochi Nechem Hayom. What God put in front of them, what Moshe put in front of them, see, behold, you know what I put in front of you? Hayom. The concept of Hayom. The right here and now. Bracha uklala. The notion of Hayom can be a blessing or a curse. The notion of our mortality, the notion of our vulnerability and fragility, it can be a blessing or it can be a curse. Have we not all just lived that for the last year and a half? Are we not confronting for some segments of the community mortality yet again? When we think about Hayom, how transient life is, and how mortal we are, that can be a bracha or a klala. On the one hand, it's a klala. If you say, let's party, because I don't know how long I'm going to live, then it's a klala, it's a curse. But if you say, if you say, I have to take advantage of every moment, I have to live every day to its fullest, because I don't know how many days I have left, then the concept, then confronting our mortality, becomes a bracha. So says Moshe Re'ei, notice, I've put before you the concept of Hayom, today. Life is short. We are mere mortals. None of us know our future. That can be a bracha or a klola. Some say, well, then I might as well smoke, drink, and party, because echol namus, live life and party, because I could die tomorrow. Others say, no, think about Yom HaMisa, and that will inspire tshuva. If I don't know how many days I have left, I have to live today to its fullest. That's another interpretation. Torah then goes on. And Pasa Perak Yudbeis, Pasuk Dalad, moving along. Next Perak, Sanctity of the Land. Our Pasha talks a lot about the conquest of the land, the sanctity of the land. We're going to get to Shemitah, how we engage and treat the land, the land that God has given us. When we enter the land, we have to be sure to destroy all the places that the idolaters worshipped their idols, their gods. We're on page 1000 now. That we um, are, are uh, inheriting. Search the width and breadth of the land. Seek out and find their idols. Eliminate them. Purge them. Because if we allow them to remain, they will reproduce. They will metastasize. They will contaminate. Ultimately, they will bring us down. So therefore, Break apart their altars. Smash their pillars. Their trees that they worship burn with fire. And their carved images you have to cut down. Obliterate their names from that place. Have we not seen this? Have we not seen the pernicious impact, the evil, wicked impact, how it spreads, how it contaminates when there are ideas and values foreign to our own? 
how even the observant community can become assimilated in some ways, we have to not show mercy. Now, to be clear, the Torah doesn't say to harm those who are different than us. The Torah says, anyone's welcome to remain and live in Israel. They simply have to abandon their idolatry and embrace the Torah's prescription for Jews and non-Jews alike. They don't have to become Jewish. Non-Jews can remain in Israel. Toshavim, they can live in Israel. They have to keep the seven Noahide laws and they have to abandon any form of idolatry. So when we entered that land, our land promised to us by the creator of the universe, who the very first Rashi tells us that all of the book of Barishas is telling us and reminding us that not only should Ben and Jerry's be served in Israel proper, Ben and Jerry's should be served the width and breadth of Israel because they have to learn, those two Jews, the opening Rashi. They have to remember that the whole land was given to us. It is ours. It is ours bequeathed from the one who created, who owns that land from its inception. Anyone, we're happy to host. We're very hospitable. You want to remain Jew or non-Jew? Non-Jew, you just have to abandon idolatry and obey the seven Noahide laws and live with us in peace. And we're happy to host you. But idolatry, we have to purge. We have to remove. We have to confront. We have to get rid of. Because it remains. It's not pluralism. If idolatry is in the land of Israel, it's not pluralism. It will negatively impact. It will bring us down. It will corrupt. It will compromise who we are. And says the Torah, concluding this paragraph, Los asun kein, this litany, this list of things that you have to do to the idols, burn the tree and dismantle the altar and knock down the pillar, all those things, don't do that to God. Don't do that to God. This is the Torah prohibition of what we call shemos. You're not allowed to erase God's name. We erase the names of the idolaters. We do not erase God's name. The laws of shemos. What does that mean? Today we have mass produced publications, reproductions of publications, and therefore we have shameless questions galore. What goes in shameless, what doesn't go in shameless, the weekly bulletin, the Dvar Torah you printed out, homework, the test that you took, the safer that's worn out, the sitter, what has to go in shameless and what doesn't. It comes from those Asun Kane. We erase the idolaters, we don't erase God's name. But we turn here back to the Katzkareb. Emezvamuna. Los Asun Kane Lashem Lakechem Perak Yudbeis Pasak Dalad. Omar Bizal Lashon the Kotzke Rebbe said in this language, I'm not going to read it in, uh, I'll try in the Yiddish. Kotzke has a beautiful, sharp, as he always does, insight. The simple understanding is what we just were told to do to the idols, don't do that to God. Says the Kotzker, read it a little bit differently. What is it you shouldn't do to God? What should you not do? Cain. Don't do Cain. What is Cain? Cain is Azoi. Azoi. Kacha. Good enough. Don't stumble into the mitzvah you're doing. Don't do the mitzvah out of habit. Don't do the mitzvah out of rote. Do the mitzvah with mindfulness. Do the mitzvah with intention. Do the mitzvah with presence of mind. Do the mitzvah in a way that transforms you. Do the mitzvah in a way that brings you closer to Hashem. Don't give God a cane. Cane means check. Cane means good enough. Cane means done. Azoi. Azoi. Good enough. Don't do good enough. Good is the obstacle to great. Lo sa'asun. Cain, Don't give God a yes. Don't give God a good enough. 
Don't give God, a, I mailed it in, I got it done, that's all I'm doing. Lo sasun kein, l'ashem alokechem, second kotzker of the day. Perikid Beis, Pasuk Yitzayin. Moving right along to the next page, the prohibition of private altars. When are we allowed to have private altars in our backyard? When do we have to cancel our public, private altars? And instead, all revolve around the public altar. That is on page 1000. Page 1002. Perikid Beis, Pasuk Yud Zayin. Permission to eat the redeemed offering. In all of our soul's desires, you can eat and slaughter meat, according to the blessing of Hashem. Not all of Jewish history will be allowed to eat flesh. For parts of Jewish history, we were not allowed to be fleshiks. Fleshiks was associated really with the karbonos. It was a heter to eat the sacrifice. And then it was allowed everywhere through the mitzvah of shechita. Rakadam lo you're not allowed to eat the blood. We have to pour out, we have to get rid of the blood. Why? Because the blood is the life source. We don't eat the blood. You're not allowed to eat in your cities. I'm on chapter 12, verse 17, page 1002 in the article Stone Chumash. In your cities you cannot eat tithe of your grain, your wine, your oil, firstborn of your cattle, your flock, all the vow offerings that you vow, the free will offerings, and what you raise up with your hand. Lo suchal. Now lo suchal literally means, the translation of the words lo suchal is, you're not allowed. Let's look at Rashi. Says Rashi, lo suchal, the Pasuk here is giving us a negative commandment. A lo It's a very strange formulation. Torah had said, lo suchal, you're not allowed. Lo suchal. But lo suchal doesn't mean not allowed. What does lo suchal mean? You can't. You're not capable. You're not competent. So Rashi reinterprets, lo suchal means... You are, you're capable, you can, you're just not allowed. It's like when you're corrected when you were a kid, when you said, can I have a chocolate bar? Can you or may you? Right? So here too, can, can you? You can eat the miser and so on, but you're not allowed. You may not. So Rabbi Shub ben Karach is coming to teach us how we should connect to Torah. How do we connect to the Torah's laws? How do we connect to the Torah's prohibition? What we need to think, the way we need to think is that that which the Torah forbids is something we're not capable of. It's not just that we're not allowed, we're not capable. We should become so attuned, so connected to the idea that lo suchal. We should habituate ourselves. We should train ourselves. We should, re- we should condition ourselves that not only not only that we're not allowed, we're not capable of. We see this also at the end of Parshat Pekudeh. After we built the Mishkan, it says, Moshe was not allowed to enter the Oal Moed because the cloud was on top of it. And the cloud reflected, represented that he wasn't allowed to, that he wasn't allowed to enter. Was Moshe afraid of the cloud? Is that what we think? That Moshe lived in fear of the cloud? Why didn't he go in? What it's teaching us is that the cloud was 
nifkaas lo, vay hamahalech besocha, kehadam haolech beshvil. Elamai velo yachol. So then why does it say velo yachol that Moshe couldn't enter it? Malamit shechala kavod lashchina, velo nichnas atshakar lo kodesh baruchu. When it says, Velo Yachol, Moshe couldn't enter until God invited him, until the cloud lifted, it didn't mean his feet didn't work. It didn't mean that he couldn't get through the area. What it meant was, Moshe couldn't bring himself to do something that wasn't allowed. Moshe, his body didn't respond to something that was forbidden. We need to train ourselves that the Torah's rules don't become optional. Torah's rules are not things that we even consider. If the Torah says no, then my body is incapable of doing it. If my Torah says yes, then my body is trained and conditioned to do it. That's what Velo Yachol means. That's what it means there. That's what it means here. We see this also, I think it's in Parshas Chukas. It says, Ki az Amon. Torah tells the Jewish people when we're traveling through the desert and into Israel, we're not allowed to cross certain boundaries, including Amon. Ki az Amon. Because the boundary of Amon was strong. Ki az. It's fortified. It's strong. Rashi there says, what makes it fortified? What makes it strong? Why is it ki az gvul b'nei Amon? So Rashi says, because God said, don't go there. Because God said, don't go there, that was a powerful and strong boundary. So what do you see from there? My brother, Rabbi Dr. Judah Goldberg, pointed out to me years ago from that Rashi, ki az gvul b'nei Amon. For the Jewish people, we were given that message, not in a way that we have to struggle or consider or decide if the Torah says no, then our body is simply incapable. If the Torah says yes, then my body is incapable of not doing it. And that's the meaning here. Lo Not only lo rishai, not only are you not allowed to eat in your gates, lo suchal. Because you're not allowed, you're also not capable. I've shared before, but you picture the muscle. You ever at a supermarket, at the cash register, the checkout, strategically they have a wall of candy, a wall of chocolate, and while your kid at the end of the day who's overtired in the, in the uh, carriage, your child starts to cry, I want a candy bar, I want a treat, I want chocolate, I want chips, and you don't want to buy it for them. They haven't eaten dinner yet, it's not healthy for them, they've eaten too much already that day, whatever reason you don't want to buy it. And they throw a tantrum, but I want it and you don't love me, and the whole supermarket's watching and the whole line of the cash register's watching and you don't know what to do because it's humiliating, it's embarrassing. And then, hopefully, because it's true, you can't lie, but you tell the child, that candy bar, that chocolate bar, it's not kosher. The same child who a moment ago was throwing the tantrum, when you say the words, it's not kosher, they say, oh, okay, I can't have it then. I guess I can't have it. How come when the negotiation was over having it, because the cavities in their teeth are negotiating over the fat in their belly, negotiating over whether it was bedtime or dinner time, then they thought it's negotiable. If only I hold out long enough. If only I cry, if only I throw a loud enough tantrum, my parent, I can wear them out. They'll give in. But the second you say the words, not kosher, lo suchal le'echol. All of a sudden, the child stops crying because they know it's a non-negotiable. And that's what the Torah here is telling us, says Rav Druk. Lo suchal does not mean eno rishai. Lo suchal doesn't just mean you're not allowed. It means it's non-negotiable. Are the Torah's rules and laws for us non-negotiables? Are they non-negotiables? Or are we regularly trying to negotiate them? Are we trying to make them conform to the lifestyle we want to lead? Or are we conforming our life to what Torah wants for us? Lo suchal. They're non-negotiables. Halacha is the way it is, and we should condition our body to respond in that way. Moving right along. 
Perak Yud Gimel, skipping to page 1006. Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Hey. Torah tells us about a false prophet. We have false prophets, charismatic individuals. They get up and they preach and they promise. And they show you a sign. And they stand up, this dreamer, and they produce a sign or a wonder. And the sign or the wonder comes about. And of which he spoke to you, saying, let us follow gods of others that you did not know and will worship them. So someone says, watch this trick. Watch what I'm going to predict. Watch what I'm going to produce. And then they do, and they say, you see? Leave Judaism. Forget God. We've got a whole new God. Whole new God. Whole new God's called power, money, celebrity, the internet, social media. Watch this trick. Watch what I can do. Abandon God and worship it. Don't listen to this, no matter how charismatic, no matter how persuasive, no matter how energized or exciting, don't listen. God's testing you. God is sending something enticing. He's dangling a temptation. Don't listen, because through this, God is testing how faithful are you? How much fidelity do you have? How loyal will you be to God? Or will you abandon and travel? What a Pasuk. We could unpack and learn that Pasuk for the next hundred years. What a Pasuk. In contrast to following the charismatic false prophet, false promises, don't get behind somebody who's corrupt. In contrast, instead, follow and walk after God. This is, this is uh, imitatio Dei. Latin, imitate God. We have an obligation, responsibility to imitate God. And to live with a sense of awe of God. And to observe His mitzvahs, to listen to His voice, to worship Him, serve Him. And to cling to Him, to connect to Him. Meshechachma. Dveikos, Devek, glue, stick with God. Stick with God through thick and thin. Stick with God in good times and bad times. Stick with God through happiness and health, sickness and health. Ubosid bakun, Devek, glue, stick with God. Acharei Hashem Elokechem. Rabbi Salavechik has a beautiful description in the Rav Chumash. Rabbi Salavechik has a beautiful description of these words. Acharei Hashem Elokechem Telechu. Perak Yudgimel Pasakei. And writes the Rav the following. Some modern scholars claim that Judaism has no binding dogmas. It's concerned solely with deeds. Some people think, says the Rav, that Judaism, the Torah, doesn't care about what you believe and what you think. All it cares about is what you do. They regard Judaism as a purely rational and this worldly faith, which is unencumbered by a complex theology is primarily humanistic in its purpose. This understanding is simplistic and erroneous. We do have the principles of Jewish faith, Ikari Hayados, which are implicit in the Torah and have been formulated and codified in the Talmud and later scholars. In addition, the deeds prescribed by our faith are both ritualistic and humanistic. The lifestyle of the religious Jew is based on certain underlying theological assumptions about God and his role in history. Clearly, the belief that he's the creator and sustainer of the universe, who revealed his law to Jewish people at Harsinai, has profound practical implications for the Jew and humanity. That man is accountable to Hashem for his deeds, that he is expected to realize his spiritual purpose in his life, transforms him from a highly developed animal into a transcendental being. Most certainly then, Judaism does affirm basic faith principles. 
We are not content, however, to have faith confessions remain theoretical. Instead, they become moral challenges and exhortations to man. They express themselves through norms of human behavior and endowed with practical significance, stimulating us either to do or to abstain, to engage or withdraw. A faith conviction may be theologically or philosophically significant, but what is primarily is the moral principle and practice that emerges from it. Beyond the clearly prescribed legal precepts of the Torah, there are vast areas in which one's moral duty is not precisely defined. Here, the basic guide of the Torah is to emulate Hashem, His damus lakel, imitate God, His damus lakel, be doma, be similar, imitate. It's the finest form of flattery. Imitate day. Talmud says, why does it say, the Gemara asks, why does it say, walk after Hashem, can you walk after God? Can you imitate God? I have a brother-in-law who does fantastic imitations. It's hilarious. It's entertaining. There are people who are great at doing imitations. You can imitate another person. They have an accent. They have a mannerism. They have a way of speaking. But how do you imitate the infinite being? How do you imitate the omnipotent? How do you imitate God? Is it really possible to walk after and imitate God? Rather, right, because it says, if you try to come too close to God, you'll be consumed by a fire. You can't come too close, but you're going to try to imitate? So it means imitate his attributes. Just as a Kodesh Baruch Hu is Ma'abisharumim, just as he clothes the, clothes the naked, so should you. Just as he is Mavakir Cholim, he visits the sick, so should you. Just as he is Menachem Avelim, he comforts the morning, so should you. We have to, he buries the dead, so should we. Gemar and Sota Yudalad, imitate God, just like he does these things, we should. Our conception of God is thus translated, says Rabbi Soloveitchik, into a code of human behavior. The Rambam clearly illustrates this point. He writes in Hilchos Yisodei HaTorah Perak Zayin Halacha Aleph. It is a fundamental principle of our faith to accept that Hashem does speak to man through prophecy, and he immediately converts this article of faith into a moral challenge. It is the ultimate duty of man to make himself worthy of prophecy, for God will not communicate with trees and stones. And the Rambam writes, based on our psukim here, the ideal of prophecy is even further developed, by describing the qualities which invite Hashem's prophetic communication, the Ram sets forth a human ideal and model towards which all should aspire. Thus, an article of faith becomes a moral exhortation. We don't only believe in a Judaism, a philosophy. It's not just about feeling. It's not just about being a good person. It is about actions, about conduct, about behavior, about mitzvos. But we also don't believe it's about empty mitzvos. The reason that we do the mitzvos, it is the way we imitate, imitate and emulate the Ribbona Shalom. We've shared before that Rav Asher Weiss, the Minchas Asher, wonders, why do I have two Gemaras? On the one hand, it says, Walk after God, visit the sick, clothe the naked, comfort the mourner, bury the dead. On the other hand, it says, Be like God. So why do I need two times to learn it? So Rav Asher Weiss says so beautifully, is imitation. It doesn't say anything about who you are, your character, your heart. You're doing an imitation. If my brother-in-law does a great imitation of someone else, it doesn't make him that someone else. It doesn't even make him necessarily like the other person. All it means is he can mimic, he can imitate the other person. Our Pasuk says, imitate God. Be like God. Means not only should you do what God does, but feel what God feels. Transform yourself into a Baal Chesed, into a Baal Rachamim, into a person of justice. Not only externally on the outside do the acts, 
but internally generate the feeling and the motivation and be like God in that way. Be like God in that way. Uh, how much time do we have? How much more do we want to do? We have a little bit more to do. Perak Yudalad Pasik test Kashus. We move on to laws of Kashus. We are children of God. Because we are children of God, we're not allowed to engrave ourselves in an act of mourning or grieving. We've studied that in the past. I encourage you to listen to past Shiram of the Parsha. We've studied that at length and some beautiful insights in what that means that we are Hashem's children. Are we his Bechor? Are we his firstborn? Or are we his only children? How do we answer that? What's its connection to this laws of mourning? What does one thing have to do with the other? How does Loses go to do connect to the laws of mourning? I'm not having differing practices with one community. We've talked about that. Take a look. Check it out. We then move on to Los Sochal Kotoeva. Don't eat any abomination. Keeping kosher, non-kosher is an abomination. And here we have the Torah giving us, delivering us the laws of kashras. And in the laws of kashras, we have Perkit Dalad Pasuk Tes. Among the laws of kashras are the laws of kashras as they relate to as they relate to fish. Perak 14, chapter 14, verse 9. The Torah tells us this you can eat of everything in the water. In other words, animals we know have to chew their cut, have split hooves. And birds come from a tradition. We have to have a mesora. That's why some, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, others don't eat turkey. Turkey is a new world bird, and we don't have a mesora. Others say it's so similar to other birds. If we do have a mesora, we do eat turkey. We do eat turkey. So what about fish? What about fish? So here the Torah tells us, that of the things in the water, anything that has fins and scales you can eat, and anything that doesn't have fins and scales you cannot eat. It is tamay. It is unclean. That's the halacha of the of the um, fish. Torah tells us that the Jewish people retain their kedusha by not eating unkosher things. The Torah here uses the word kadosh and tamay, holy and unholy, impure and pure. That we are what we eat. We are big believers. We are what we eat. Not only like we are what we eat because we absorb it on the hips. But we are what we eat means the quality and character of those animals. We absorb their qualities. We absorb their character. So the Ramban writes, the birds outside of our Masora are birds of prey. They are birds that are aggressive. We don't want to observe those character traits. That's what Ramban writes here. And he writes it earlier. The Yabar Benel explains similarly that non-kosher food puts bad midos in a person. Our whole mission is to repair our midos, to refine ourselves, to live our best selves. So... We have to do that not only from a physically healthy perspective by putting the right foods in our body, but spiritually as well. The Gemara Chulun Daf Samach Vav quotes the Mishnah, the sixth parak of Nida, that teaches that any fish that has scales has fins. Any fish that has scales automatically has fins, but not all fish that have fins have scales. So now that leads to a peculiar question. If that's true, if that's true that every fish that has fins, uh, that has scales has fins, so wonders the Gemara, why did the Torah need to tell me that in order to qualify as a kosher fish, it has to have fins and scales? Just tell me scales, and I know that every fish with scales has fins. There are almost two million species of fish in the sea. And by the way, the Torah promises any fish with fins has, uh, with scales has fins, and it's been accurate. How could the Torah know that? Two million. If the Torah were written by man, how would they make that promise? Wouldn't the entire authenticity of that religious document be undermined, compromised, if in fact the first time you find a fish that has fins and no scales, 
but we've not found such a fish. All fish that have fins have scales, just like the Gemara, just like the Torah promises. So the Gemara wonders, if it's true that every fish with fins has scales, the opposite. Every fish with scales has fins, so why did the Torah just tell me? If a fish has scales, it's kosher. That's the Gemara's question. And the Gemara answers, Lahagdel Torah, Ladira. Yagdel Torah, Viadir. Let Torah be growth. We'll learn Torah by giving us that extra condition, that extra criteria. Somehow we are expanding, we are promoting Torah. What in the world does that mean? So the Babacher Rebbe Zatzal is a beautiful insight. The Babacher Rebbe says, Rabbi Kiva taught that the Jewish people are similar to fish in water, where the Jewish people are the fish and the Torah is the water. Just like a fish can't live outside of water, that was Rabbi Kiva's response, why he was risking his life to teach Torah against the Roman persecution, because just like a fish can't live out of water, a Jew can't live outside of the environment of Torah, which is our water. So based on the Babacher Rebbe said, the Jewish people are like fish, and each one of us have to embrace our fins and our scales. What does that mean, fins and scales? So says the Rebbe, there's an age-old argument, and we see it in Yosef and his brothers, and we see it throughout Tanakh, and we see it throughout our Torah. Should the Jew retreat and live in isolation? Should the Jew build a wall, a fortress around himself, herself, and shut out the entire world around us? Or should the Jew embrace the world, integrate into the world, contribute to the world, all, of course, with boundaries and with filters to make sure not to assimilate into the world, but nevertheless to engage the world. Said the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the scales and fins represent the two sides of this argument, the two approaches to life. The scales protect the fish from the outside world. The scales are like retreating into a fortress. The scales are like living in isolation. They make sure that nothing penetrates, nothing gets in. The scales represent a protective barrier, an iron barrier. The fins the fins let us swim. The fins make us mobile. The fins let us explore. The fins let us integrate. So the Torah is telling us that a kosher fish, to be a kosher Jew, you need both aspects in life. A Jew who only embraces his fins, who only tries to integrate, but doesn't have scales, is not kosher. You cannot try to swim and integrate and explore the world without having healthy boundaries, without being a strong fortress, without having a Torah identity. But similarly, a Jew with scales who only looks inward, who only retreats, who doesn't serve and integrate and explore the world, is also not fully serving Hashem. And said the Rebbe, that's what it means, Yagdil Torah v'yadir. If you want to be Magdil Torah, if you want to grow and enhance and expand Torah, you need both fins and scales. You need the right balance between the two. You need to know when to create the protective barrier, when to swim with the fins and go explore and do the two. When Rav Yisrael Meir Lau heard this idea from the Babach Rebbe, he added, I heard from Rav El Yadda Goldvicht and Smichas Chaver, he added, Rabbi Lau, that the Lubavitcher Rebbe brought this exact attitude and identity to the mission of Lubavitchers, to the Shluchim, to all of us, of, on the one hand, having a very strong identity as Yerushalayim of the Hashem, B'nai Torah, B'nos Torah, but on the other hand, having healthy fins, being able to swim, to go out, to explore, to spread like the fish, all throughout the land. I just want to add a ha'ara on this insight. One more uh, to complement the idea here of the Lubavitcher Rebbe is the fins also give you the ability to do one other thing. Scales protect. Scales allow you to live in retreat. But the fins do something else that you also need not only to integrate into the world, sometimes even to retreat, sometimes even to protect our values, you're going to have to do something called, you're going to have to swim upstream. We shared an insight about the upside-down nunin 
around Vayi bin Sara Aaron, and the Jewish people being likened to the upside down Nun. Nun is the Aramaic for fish, and the idea that the fish sometimes has to swim upstream. Salmon swim upstream. Go on YouTube. You could watch a video of salmon swimming upstream. It's actually pretty remarkable to be able to watch, to be able to see. So perhaps the other significance and the other reason, the other purpose of the fins is the scales can only protect you so far. Sometimes you have to be willing to live in a world and face a culture. You have to be willing to swim upstream. It won't be convenient and it may not be comfortable, but you have to be willing to swim upstream. Okay, we have time for one more idea. Shemitah. I wanted to share so many more. Perak Tezvav, Pasuk Beis. Perak Tezvav is now the world of Shemitah. Shemitah's Ksafim. The world of Shemitah's Ksafim. The cancellation of loans. Miket Sheroshon Tasa Shemitah. Seven years, the end of seven years, we make Shemitah. V'zed davar Shemitah, Shemot Kobal, Mashe Yadoa, Sheyashem Bereehu. Lo Yigosh Esreel V'esachim Kikira Shemitah Lashem. This is the matter of Shemitah. Every creditor has to remit, forgive authority over what he lent. Don't press your fellow or brother because we proclaim that we forgive. Some ask, is the loan forgiven even if the, even if the um, lender didn't proclaim? Maybe from the Pasuk, you have to actually proclaim it out loud. Maybe that's what you have to do. So the Shemitah Ksaf and the Narpasha tells us to absolve the debts of anyone who borrowed money during the previous seven years. Um, the lender declares that he's not going to press. Why? Why do we have this mitzvah? There's a lot more to explore. In the future, we'll get into it. We don't have time now. I'll just briefly tell you the Sforno. Sforno says the Jewish people were given Shabbos. That is a day for us to dive into, to explore, to reinforce our spiritual identity and pursuits. Shabbos is the day we retreat from the pursuit of the material and we focus on the experience of the spiritual. To emphasize that malacha, the whole reason that we are working, the whole reason that we succeed, the whole reason that we amass and accumulate is to... Pursue the Ruchnius, not the opposite. The Mechilta points out that the Jewish people were already keeping Shabbos when they received the Torah. We were given Shabbos at Marah. We were already keeping Shabbos. So therefore, we were already prepared to accept the many mitzvahs that demand you to forgo material pursuits for spiritual ones. And those mitzvahs include the laws of business ethics and monetary dealings and um, how we view our material assets, that which we possess. Sefer Chinuch adds that the purpose behind Shemitah's Ksafim is to help develop an attitude of generosity, of kindness, to be forgiving and foregoing, to recognize that we can help the people around us, to absolve the loans. We enable and empower the people who needed that loan to be able to have another chance to be able to start again. Now, it happens to be in the first century, Hillel instituted the Prusbol, which we're not going to get into right now, Prusbuli Ubuti, an advantage to the rich and the poor, because due to the laws of Shemitah Ksafim, people were not lending, because they feared they wouldn't be repaid, they weren't going to lend, particularly in the years four, five, six, five, six, seven. You're not going to lend if you know you're not going to be paid back. So they instituted, particularly in a time in which Shemitah is only the Rabbanan, Shemitah is So the Prisbol was a legal loophole to be able to continue to lend. But I want to share with you an amazing insight of Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch notes on this Pasuk, Perak Tazvav Pasuk Beis. Chapter 15, verse 2, You're not allowed to press. You can't pressure. If you lend money to somebody, you can't put pressure. And how are we describing? What words are we using to describe the recipient of the loan, the borrower? The reason you can't press them is because you're supposed to see them and feel them, connect to them as your neighbor and your friend. Your friend. Your brother. Your friend and your brother. Who presses their friend and their brother? So the simple understanding here is that 
it is the lender that's being kind to the borrower. But Rav Hirsch has another interpretation, a fascinating interpretation. And Rav Hirsch suggests, you can read it inside, we don't have time. At the end of Mishnah Yishviyas, the Mishnah tells us that it is virtuous for the borrower to repay the loan anyway. Even though the lender has to forego, even though the lender forgives, even though the lender publicly declares or privately declares that they have forgiven the loan, there's a virtue, a nobility. It's a nice thing for the borrower to pay it back anyway. So it says, first, you know what's happened here? Now you take the individual who's repaying the loan out of a sense of debt, out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of no choice, and now they can repay it on their own, they can choose to. Why? Because the person who lent them money is their brother, is their neighbor, is their friend. Refresh flips it on its head, not just from an act of kindness from the lender to the borrower, but when the borrower now, every seven years, we have the chance to repay loans, not from an economic standpoint, a financial standpoint, an obligatory standpoint, from a voluntary standpoint. And that changes the whole equation, it changes our whole attitude, it changes our whole philosophy of materialism. A lot more to say on it. We'll have to save for next time. Tomorrow morning, 8.15, 10 minutes of Minim Mesilis Sharm. Tomorrow morning, 8.45, Living with Amuna. Just a reminder, if you want to sponsor, beersonline.org slash sponsor. You could find all of our shiurim throughout the week. Special shiurim on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. You could find it at rabbiephraimgoldberg.org. And you could find it even on a app, which was made to listen to all the shiurim in one convenient place. Thank you for learning with me. An honor and a privilege. Until next time. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.